Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're going to talk about pyro. We've done some Platonists for a bit, but we're going to do pyro, the Greek philosopher associated with Peronism and with the skeptical movement. Um, some people might go, well, is this political? You know, isn't this political theory 101? It's not uh, philosophy 101 or uh, you know, metaphysics and spirituality 101. But I do think that there are some significant political consequences to Pyro that people don't often emphasize when they discuss him. And that's part of why he tends to not get brought up in discussions of political thought in antiquity. Uh, so we're going to do, we're going to kind of run through Pyro. Alex has worked up an interesting set of thoughts about Pyro that I am very interested to hear about. And I think you'll be interested to hear about his thoughts too. Uh, to just start with a little bit of background, uh, Pyro accompanied Alexander the Great to India, and there he encountered what in Greek are referred to as naked wise men, who are purported to have influenced his thinking, though a lot of scholarship also points to some Greek influences. Uh, Democritus, for instance, the atomist, the one who argued that the universe is just atoms and void, is often mentioned as a possible influence. And Plato as well, insofar as some of the Platonic dialogues are quite skeptical about what you can learn from empirical facts and appearances. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to get at what Pyro himself believed, because none of Pyro's writings survives, and he's not reported to have written much in the first instance in any case. We do know that Pyro had a follower named Timon, and many secondhand accounts draw on Timon's account of Pyro. In particular, there's a passage from Arist Aristoteles, a first century BC peripatetic, an Aristotelian, who offers a version of Pyro based on an account from Timon. Okay? So Aristoteles is coming a couple hundred years after Pyro, and he's building his account based on on Timon. But even this account from Aristocles comes to us through another mediator, Eusebius, a 4th century AD Christian bishop. Eusebius claims to be quoting Aristocles, who paraphrases Timon, who gave Pyro's view insofar as Timon understood it and could communicate it. So, it's possible that there's some distortion in all of this, because what we have is a report of a report of a report. But Aristocles is usually pretty charitable in his representation of other positions. He's written about a number of different accounts about people that we do know more about, where we do have more original writing. And even when Aristocles disagrees with people, he usually does a pretty good job of representing other people's positions. So modern scholars think he is a pretty reliable person and that you can rely on his account of what Pyro believed. So to start with just some of the basics of it, uh, Pyro is reported to have believed one of two things, either that nature is undifferentiable, unmeasurable, and indeterminable, 
or that nature is these things for us because of our epistemic limitations. And it's not entirely clear whether he is making a metaphysical assertion that nature is this way, or if he is saying we are epistemically limited in such a way that we can't learn anything about nature or can't say anything about nature. The Pyrrhonists who come later, uh, who claim to have been influenced by him, generally take this epistemic position that we can't learn things about nature. But it's also possible that Pyro may have believed the metaphysical position. And the scholarship remains terribly divided about this. And there's no clear answer to the question of whether Pyro is making the metaphysical claim or the epistemic claim. Pyro is purported to have, have believed that neither our sensations nor our opinions tell the truth or lie which, of course, is compatible with either of those views. Therefore, we should not trust sensations or opinions instead adopting an unopinionated attitude, and this consists in responding to claims by saying that claims are no more true than they are untrue, that they are both true and untrue, or that they are neither true nor untrue. Indeed, the Greek word for no more became a popular skeptic slogan. Right? So if you adopt this attitude, then this produces non-assertion or speechlessness or apathy, depending on how precisely you translate the attitude. And eventually this attitude gives way to ataraxia, which is freedom from disturbance. Uh, Pyro is reported to have implemented his philosophy in his life and to have achieved a, a non-trivial amount of tranquility as a result. The accounts say that he rarely flinched from pain or danger. He would often deviate from social norms out of indifference to them. Uh, he's alleged to have been uninterested in engaging in debate with other philosophers because he was indifferent to whether the claims they were making were true or false and unbothered by the things that they might say. Some reports go so far as to suggest he would not avoid precipices, oncoming wagons, or dangerous animals, and had to be protected from these things by his followers and friends. Uh, but these may be exaggerated and probably are exaggerated. Uh, a lot of skeptics argued that appearances could potentially be a guide to action, provided that one does not take appearances seriously as real. Right? A lot of Pyrrhonists make that kind of argument. It's not entirely clear whether that's what Pyro himself is saying, but a lot of his followers take this view that you can still act on the basis of appearances, provided you don't reify them and take them seriously as, as real. Right? So, of course, uh, there are a number of later Pyrrhonists who claim to be influenced by Pyro. People like, and I'm, I'm going to butcher some of the Greek names, but uh, Anesidemus in the first century BC, and of course, Sextus Empiricus in the second century AD, right? And uh, these skeptics often draw on Pyro to debate the Stoics. And I'm going to say a bit about some of the arguments that they used in a moment. But first, I'm going to give Alex an opportunity to give us some of his initial thoughts on encountering Pyro and on encountering the Aristocles passage. So what did you think, Alex? So when we talk about what's political in ancient thought, um, is there much outside of metaphysics or military questions or, you know, general morality? Because there's not much of a concept of economy. Is that correct? I mean, there's talk about trade, 
occasionally, but a lot of the ancient theorists seem to be talking about existential questions. Um, yeah, and there's discussion of the class structure in Plato and Aristotle, especially, mm-hmm. uh, and you could even find you know, possible claims that you, might strike you in isolation if you had never been exposed to it as Marxist in Plato, when Plato describes cities as, as producing the kind of people based on the way property is distributed. So the oligarchic city produces the oligarchic man. You know, the idea that the kind of person that you are depends on the distribution of property in the city uh, and who is therefore ruling. Uh, that is would strike a lot of people as almost a Marxist idea in terms of its level of attention to the effect of, of economic questions on politics. But uh, I do think that what you're getting at with your question is that in antiquity, you don't draw these sharp distinctions between what is political and what isn't, as we tend to do now. One of the ways the, say, separation of church and state functions in modern political theory is that you draw a kind of line between spiritual or religious or metaphysical matters and the political, or the public-private distinction that a lot of modern liberal theorists draw makes this kind of firm separation. And in antiquity, that line is not drawn. And insofar as it is drawn, it's a soft line with the recognition that it's permeable and that things in one box, of course, affect things in the other. That might be because there's not such a huge political sphere, though. If you think about who has access to making decisions, and what kind of questions get discussed by the leaders. Uh, I don't think the leaders are going to be talking that much about metaphysics. That's the thing. So it's like educated people who have leisure time to think about what matters in life. And yeah, that's what politics means. Whereas nowadays, that's like what you do outside of politics. That's a private sphere. So, Well, and insofar as these ancient thinkers become interested in virtue and in the good life, and in politics as a vehicle for enabling people to live it, this question of whether your attitude to politics is compatible with the good life is raised. And so all of these ancient schools had thoughts about whether you should engage in politics and whether that would actually help you. you know, with, say, the Stoics making the argument that political engagement is you know, something you should do unless for some reason you can't, while the Epicureans argued that you should go into the garden and uh, maybe not engage so much in political affairs. Uh, the Platonists and the Aristotelians baking politics in very heavily from the get-go. Uh, so different, there are different positions about how much you should personally engage in politics in all of these accounts. Uh, and not only that, but when we think about how we produce research about social science or about political economy. Some of these questions about how we can know things are relevant in determining what carries epistemic weight, right? So when we are having an argument about what the city should do or about what should happen in a state, the way that we frame epistemology affects what kinds of argumentative moves you can make and what kinds of positions will be politically tenable. So the skeptic position, insofar as it goes after the Stoic position, is politically very relevant because a lot of Stoics get involved in politics because Zeno, the Stoic Zeno's position, is that you should get involved in politics unless for some reason you can't. So because Stoicism is compatible with politics, a lot of Romans take it up 
Uh, a lot of the other Hellenistic schools are more critical of engagement in politics insofar as they think of politics as a threat to ataraxia. If ataraxia is about freedom from disturbance, the political life is a life full of events and things going on. And it's all about caring about how things turn out. And if you're so focused on how things turn out in the world, then there's all sorts of disturbances in life. So a lot of Hellenistic schools that are interested in ataraxia are less enthusiastic about engagement in politics. But the Stoics are a remarkable exception to that insofar as they pitch themselves as compatible with political engagement, right? And when we think about Stoics who are being political, there's a lot of, of different instances of this. So, of course, you have, say, Cicero, who did not position himself as a Stoic, but was influenced by Stoic natural law claims. And a lot of people project, say, natural law theory onto Aristotle, but it's not in the peripatetic school itself. It comes in insofar as Stoicism, which does focus on natural law, is taken up by other philosophers. Yeah. The Stoics, because they are proponents of natural law theory, they tend to have a kind of cosmopolitan politics insofar as the Stoics believe that all human conduct can, in theory, be harmonized with cosmic order. And since all human beings are human and they're all subject to natural law, Politics can potentially be something for human beings in general or writ large in Stoicism. So you don't have the kind of political limitations that is more typical of, say, uh, Greek thought that's focused around the polis. And so you can see how Rome, which has a kind of universal empire, Romans would be interested in this way of thinking as a, a possible narrative for a kind of universal empire subject only to natural law and positioning Roman law as in some way an expression of, of natural law, right? And then in addition to, say, just the kind of spillage of Stoicism into other schools through people like Cicero, you also have you know, explicit Roman Stoics like Seneca identifying the Stoic sage with the imperial title, trying to make Emperor Nero into the Stoic sage. You have Marcus Aurelius straightforwardly adopting a Stoic posture, you know, writing his meditations, and of course, having been taught himself by Epictetus and, and other, other Stoics, having read a lot of, of that Stoic literature. In the later centuries of Rome, Stoicism declines and Neoplatonism and Christianity take off. And we've, we've talked a lot about Neoplatonism recently because of that. But... Uh, Thomas Aquinas adopts a natural law view, and, and again, that's not just an Aristotelian influence. There's Stoic influence there on, on that. And later on, uh, David Hume takes up a lot of Peronian ideas to critique natural law theory and to critique uh, more Stoicist-influenced branches of Enlightenment thought. David Hume argues that natural law theory conflates what seems to be empirically true with what ought to be the case, and that one cannot be sure about the empirical claims in any event. Uh, but Hume uh, it differs a little bit from, uh, from some of the skeptics. Uh, you know, Sextus Empiricus says that you can assent, you know, uh, assent to appearances in daily life without taking them fully seriously as true, right? And this language of assent, by the way, references the Stoic language. The Stoics argue that we have impressions and we 
if the impressions are cognitive impressions, if they really reflect something about reality, then we give assent to them and, and affirm them, right? So the Stoic identifies our will in, in this capacity we have to give assent. And for the Stoic, the, the sage is one who always gives assent when he ought to, and never uh, gives assent when he shouldn't, and never wavers. So once assent is given, it is never taken back. So the Stoic sage is perfectly consistent, never errors, always giving assent at the right times, never giving it at the wrong times. The skeptical argument in response to this is to suggest that the sage really doesn't have any basis for giving assent because there is no evidence that impressions correspond in any way to reality. And so, therefore, there's no way of distinguishing a cognitive impression from an impression that is false. And the, since the Stoics say that if the sage isn't sure about an impression, the sage will withhold assent, the skeptics argue that by the Stoics' own logic, the sage must never give assent. And therefore, the Stoic sage, uh, if, if the Stoic sage is a real sage, he never gives assent and is, in fact, a skeptic who never makes claims. Right. But, you know, the, the response from the Stoics is, well, if you never give assent, how do you get through life? How do you do anything? Wouldn't you just be like, you know, these stories about Pyro having to be saved from precipices or saved from oncoming wagons because you could never assent to the claim that, you know, a wagon is approaching you and it's going to run you over. And the response from people like Sextus Empiricus is to say that you can give a kind of provisional assent to appearances for the purposes of acting, provided that you don't take this overly seriously. Hume extends this, and Hume argues that you not only can give this kind of provisional assent to appearances, but that you can give this kind of provisional assent to theoretical ideas. And this enables Hume to affirm a form of empiricism, while at the same time affirming skepticism about whether that empiricism is really true. So Hume is famous in part because he is an empiricist, but he's also a skeptic. And so he's constantly giving all of these arguments that undercut the empiricism he nonetheless affirms. And Hume's argument is you've got to affirm this anyway, in a kind of provisional sense, without taking it too seriously, because the alternative is to be so depressed and so miserable and so upset that you can't go anywhere or do anything, uh, you know, that you, you sink into a kind of depression. Which is the opposite of what Pyro claims, I guess. The freedom yes, comes from removing. Yes, the opposite of ataraxia. Yeah. Yes, Pyro thinks if you drop all of your beliefs, then you'll have ataraxia. Whereas Hume says if you drop all of your beliefs, then you'll be miserable and, and you know, in a constant state of anxiety and terror. And therefore... You've got to provisionally affirm even you know, quite substantive theoretical views. Now, the, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that the, Hume, uh, the Humean position is very similar to the kind of contemporary attitude people have in the sciences or to political or social science, right? Which is that, you know, really, we can't be sure about any of the stuff we empirically observe but nonetheless, empiricism is going to be the epistemological method that we're going to use to try to establish knowledge claims. So we get a kind of positivist, uh, a pragmatist, positivist skepticism as the kind of dominant way of thinking. And this way of thinking is too skeptical to incorporate 
ancient or medieval theories that about abstract goods, right? It's too empiricist to incorporate rationalist theories or more religiously motivated theories, right? But it's also not skeptical enough to result in a Buddhist attitude uh, or lead to ataraxia. So it's not going to uh, cause you to not adopt any beliefs and, and to be in any way approaching a kind of traditional Buddhist uh, you know, not making claims position. Uh, but it's also not going to allow you to consider the possibility of adopting abstractions like you know, Plato's theory of the good or uh, you know, a, a kind of traditional co- Christian conception of God. So it's, it's bo- it, it both negates the apophatic, the, the fully apophatic attitudes and the fully uh, cataphatic attitudes. It is trying to make claims, but only very provisionally. Uh, but it still wants to make claims. And so it can be framed as a kind of balance, but it's different from the balance that I've tended to talk about in previous episodes, where I, I have often pitched kind of Plato's theory of the forms as itself a balance between making claims about reality and not. And I mentioned Plato as an influence on Pyro because this Platonist notion that while you can't just deduce conclusions from appearances, because appearances are potentially deviant from the real, uh, you know, while that has a kind of skeptical implication, Plato nonetheless claims that uh, you, you should still act on the basis of what you take to be good and that the good is something that a wise person can engage with productively. So there is a doubt about appearances, but at the same time, an affirmation of the importance of the good and the importance of trying to, as best one can, uh, understand and, and align oneself with that. And that is a kind of balance between claiming schematically that you know exactly what is good and exactly how the universe works and refusing to make claims. But the kind of Humean empiricism strikes a different, uh, a completely different balance by embracing the skeptical argument while at the same time provisionally positing an empiricism. So the skeptical argument is applied all the way down to religious or to uh, rationalist arguments and positions. But it is not applied all the way down to empiricism because empiricism is still retained as, well, something you've got to have to get through life. Is that because you can't discover new truths without empiricism? And the skepticism just gives you a kind of contemplation? So you kind of know that you can't determine things or that things are indeterminate. So you just apply that reflection again and again until you release from that domain, as opposed to the empiricist or the Platonist who is looking to kind of add new truths of knowledge into your body, yeah, into your corpus to improve things. Yeah, it's almost a kind of empiricist Pascal's wager, you know, like Pascal's wager that you ought to believe in God because if you're wrong, you know, you may go to hell. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it, you ought to believe even though it's not easy for you to believe uh, or you may you know, be disinclined to believe. Similarly here, Hume says you ought to affirm provisionally some kind of empiricism because without it, you can't get through life. Is that like Platonist saying that you need to have the good as a first principle and take that unhypothetically without question? Yeah, it's a little similar in that way because Hume, yeah, in, in suggesting that empiricism is the thing that you need to get through life, 
you could say that he has the same reason for adopting this provisional pragmatic attitude to empiricism that Plato has for affirming the one or the good. Because they're both about what's correct and both them. Yeah, they're both about what's correct. And so there is a kind of implicit Platonism almost in Hume claiming that empiricism is what you've got to provisionally affirm to get through life. Uh, this idea that you ought to be or need to be doing you know, affirming something to get through life, that getting through life is a goal that one ought to have, that there are goals that one ought to have, involves some kind of claim about what's good. It just seems like the most mainstream and almost obvious kind of maybe religious insight or scientific insight that guides all political systems. I mean, it always starts with people telling others to maybe correct their intentions or make them more altruistic and then manifest things on the basis of that, as opposed to just, yeah, say we can't determine whether it's true or false. And uh, we're just going to infinitely go in a kind of circle. Yeah, there's a need to... There's a need to have something to work with in politics, but it can't be too airtight, because if it's too airtight, then it becomes a straitjacket and prevents the state from evolving its legitimation criteria in response to changing circumstances. And the problem with the kind of stoic natural law theory, which eventually becomes Aquinas' natural law theory and and eventually becomes a kind of Catholic natural law theory, uh, is that it has a rigidity to it that makes it easy to doubt. And if there is any breakup in the agreement over it, the political consequences of that are very severe. The hard skeptical position, however, can't substantiate a politics because the hard skeptical position prevents affirming anything even provisionally. Politics requires some kind of theory which allows provisional affirmation. And the, the Humean version of skepticism allows this in a way that the earlier, purer version of skepticism does not. And so Hume provides for empiricism kind of like what Plato provides for rationalism, a, a version of it which does not make such dogmatic, assertive, schematic claims, but does give grounds for distinguishing between better or worse and distinguishing between a stronger or weaker epistemic position. So is it true that the skeptics make absolutely no claims at all? Or maybe I'm misinformed. I thought on simpler matters, they might, like, for example, is a tree a tree? They're not going to deny that. But it's more like when, whenever there's a, a conflict in reason, there's too many reasons to believe every other single view. That's when we get puzzled. That's when we have to suspend judgment, not just for calling a spade a spade. Or is it for literally anything? Well, so this is something that is debated in the literature on this tradition, whether they don't affirm anything at all or whether they do affirm something. Sextus Empiricus has a quote that I actually wrote down that I think is very useful in trying to get at what they may be trying to do. Now, of course, whether Sextus Empiricus is in line with Pyro here is a question that we can't be sure about the answer to. But Sextus Empiricus says, when we say that the skeptics do not hold beliefs, We do not take belief in the sense in which some say, quite generally, that belief is acquiescing in something. For skeptics, assent to the feelings forced upon them by appearances. For example, they would not say when heated or chilled, I think I am not heated or chilled. 
Rather, we say that they do not hold beliefs in the sense in which some say that belief is assent to some unclear object of investigation in the sciences, for Pyrrhonists do not assent to anything unclear. Well, I'm not sure. So does he admit that he's hot or not? Or does he say that? So he would say that he would give assent to a feeling forced upon him oh, forced by appearance. Mm. So he would not deny that he has been heated, right? But he is not going to claim that that belief amounts to a scientific claim about the real nature of things. So when a traditional skeptic feels hot, they of course have to acknowledge that they feel hot, but they are not going to make the further claim that they are hot in a uh, naturalistic sense, that they are actually hot. They feel hot, but that doesn't mean that they are hot or that the true nature of the situation is that it is hot. Yeah, is it because they don't want to be hot or is it just because they want to be as accurate as possible and say that reality is too complex to just break it down like that? Maybe They do not assent to anything unclear and they think that the natural claim, the claim about nature is insufficiently clear for them to give assent. But that just sounds odd to someone today because you could see them flushing and they would just point to a biology textbook or, or anything really, a thermometer, like you have a temperature. So how is that deniable? Right. It's hard to understand well, that. I think Hume kind of made the set of arguments that undergirds a lot of our contemporary science. So if you are familiar with Hume, Hume makes a lot of these kinds of arguments to make the point that, well, you can't really be sure that you're hot. But provisionally, to get along in life, you have to adopt for Hume certain empiricist theories to be able to move around and do things. So the ultimate argument for science, for modern science, is that it enables you to do stuff that if you don't affirm science, you can't do. If you affirm a scientific epistemology, you can build an airplane and fly in it. And people who don't affirm scientific epistemologies can't build airplanes and fly in them. You know, uh, having that epistemology enables you to do things that you otherwise couldn't do, and therefore there's pragmatic value in it, regardless of whether it's really true. And so for Hume, empiricism, we can't be sure it's really true, but it's pragmatic to adopt it. Right? Uh, the... Uh, yeah, another, another quote from Sextus Empiricus that I think is interesting. Uh, you must realize that it is not our intention to assert that standards of truth are unreal, that would be dogmatic. Rather, since the dogmatists seem plausibly to have established that there is a standard of truth, we have set up plausible seeming arguments in opposition to them, affirming neither that they are true, nor that they are more plausible than those on the contrary side but concluding to suspension of judgment because of the apparently equal plausibility of these arguments and those produced by the dogmatists. So here Sextus Empiricus frames skepticism in opposition to Stoicism. Which is weird. It's like saying, you're wrong. I don't care about knowledge, but I care about not getting it wrong. I care about receptivity, awareness of facts, basically, which is knowledge. It's, I mean, why would yeah, you... And yeah. And this is a little bit different. When Sextus Empiricus deploys this, it's to negate the dogmatists and to negate Stoicism. When Pyro deployed this, it was framed more as a path to ataraxia. Now, I don't think that Sextus Empiricus would say that skepticism is not a path to ataraxia, 
but his emphasis here is on argument. And in the accounts of Pyro, the goal was not to argue with people. It was to be free from arguing with people because arguing with people is disturbance. So Pyro is, is kind of radically anti-political in that sense, that Pyro is not interested in engaging in, in debate in general about philosophical questions, metaphysical questions, political questions. But Pyro's ideas result in thinking that does have political consequences. Oh, yeah. And so sometimes when you're thinking about political theory, we have to look at theory that seems non-political to find the roots of political intervention. Yeah, quite conservative, if you're being kind, or maybe uh, maybe it's a lot of inertia as well in, in Pyro, because you're not taking a stand on things. So obviously, as long as you live, experiences are going to arise, so leaders are going to tell you to do something. And if you neither assent nor don't assent, then you're going to get dragged into things, regardless of whether you choose. So you tend to support. Well, and Pyro himself was dragged into the expedition oh, thought, to India. I thought he went just for, yeah, for, for fun. No, he goes with Alexander. But not, not to fight, right? I thought he went to look for the, the ascetics and the, the well, he, he comes along. Uh, I, I, we don't have enough evidence to say whether or not um, Pyro picked up a spear. A lot of philosophers in antiquity did pick up the spear and fight in phalanxes or as phalangites. Uh, we can't be, I, I don't think we can be certain about whether Pyro himself personally fought, uh, but we know that he went. We know that uh, uh, he, he went all the way to India, so he went all the way. And that getting you know, willingness to just be swept up is what enabled him to have that encounter in India, however much that encounter may have influenced. And I think that uh, part of what's interesting about this is that it is the kind of philosophy that's produced by living under Alexander the Great. So you have Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great is this uh, legendary general who is making all of these legendary decisions, and you are along for the ride. And it would not be at all to your benefit to try to be anything other than along for the ride. And indeed, the Diadaki, Alexander's generals, who after his death fight over control of the empire, many of them end up uh, dead in unfortunate circumstances because they tried to be political. They tried to rule parts of Alexander's empire as kingdoms. They ended up fighting with each other as a consequence of this, and many of them ended up dead as a consequence of this. And so at the time that Pyro is writing, getting all mixed up in the politics of Alexander the Great's empire is, it's not very clear how you would accomplish very much by doing that. Do you think it's, it's similar nowadays when you have a lot of stoic revival and people wanting to be almost stealthy in their political opinions, not wanting to be too woke or too dangerous, especially in more authoritarian countries, not say things that get yeah. in trouble? Yeah, Stoicism is tricky because Stoicism does not tell you not to do politics. Stoicism gives you an ethos which is meant to be livable with or without politics, but encourages you to engage in politics if you can, if it's available to you. So Stoicism is compatible with politics, but also compatible with a situation where politics is impossible or not very easy to, to use. So this makes it different from, say, Aristotle or Plato's views, which are much more politically 
engaged and thoroughgoingly political. You, you are going to really struggle if you're in the wrong kind of city for Plato. If the wrong kinds of people are making decisions, it's going to cause trouble in your life. And for Aristotle, man is a political animal. And if you're not engaged in politics, there is a part of, of who you are as a person that is not able to be active. And there is something kind of dehumanizing going on. For the Stoics, because Stoicism is meant to be a, an attitudinal thing, a skill that a person possesses, and it focuses around the, the will in this idea of giving and withholding assent, which the will is, is able to do. Uh, it focuses on the ability of the individual to, to have a kind of virtuous life in a potentially politically independent way. And that, uh, this idea of giving and withholding assent is, I think, where free will kind of enters the ancient Greek discourse. That prior to this, you don't really have discussion of assent in Greek philosophy. There is no you know, big emphasis on assent in Aristotle or Plato. Uh, knowledge is not something that you, you choose to have or not have or that you uh, assent to or don't assent to. It comes out of a process which involves other people and involves politics. But you would still choose to have it if you lived in a political system. You were lucky enough to, to make that choice or to know that that is the choice that's in line with your rational nature. Well, that, that's to use choice in a somewhat broader sense than I'm using it here. Uh, I, I'm focusing specifically on the concept of assent, this idea that there is a kind of moment of willing where the will either assents or doesn't assent. And so there's a kind of not just a choice in the sense that you make a choice that may have other kind of causes that are driving it, but that you, through reason alone, are exercising this capacity to assent. That's a, a very free will kind of idea. Whereas in, say, Plato, uh, yes, you, you know, make decisions to do different things, but those decisions come out of a context and are not just reducible to whether or not you have enough virtue. Plato talks about virtue as something which is generated in large part by political conditions. Aristotle talks about virtue as something which requires time and access to education and these other discrete external things. And the Stoics tended to oppose both Plato and Aristotle specifically on the grounds that the Stoics felt that virtue should not depend on anything external, that you should be able to develop virtue regardless of the situation, and therefore regardless of what kind of society you live in or what the politics is. And that's part of what makes Stoicism attractive now to people who want to better themselves in uh, societies that they may mistrust or while living in cultures that they may find uh, that they think are deviant or, or decadent. And a lot of conservatives have been drawn to Stoicism because they have cultural critiques, but they nonetheless want to believe that they can be personally virtuous in the face of this culture that they think is derelict in, in various ways. Uh, for Plato or Aristotle, you, you can't separate those things. You can't just go and try to live a virtuous life independent of, of the state, uh, independent of what's going on politically. But because the Stoics still says if you can do politics, you might as well, a conservative who embraces Stoicism doesn't have to give up the political and can still engage in politics while at the same time engaged in the Stoic self-improvement project. So it's compatible with politics, while at the same time it's also an escape from politics. So Stoicism tells you participate in politics, but whether or not you're a good person and living a good life doesn't depend on that. 
And is Pyra saying, I guess you're forced to participate in life and whether or not you assent or not, your happiness doesn't depend on that. Well, you, you ought not to assent to anything for Pyro. Mm. So since you ought not to assent to anything apart from you know, appearances forced upon you by circumstance, maybe. And I think some of the later skeptics uh, are potentially taking this away from Buddhism because they, are, they become interested in having a political debate with the Stoics. And once you're interested in having a political debate with the, uh, with the Stoics and negating Stoicism, then you are trying to do something. And you have a little bit of a craving to, to, to embarrass the Stoics or to put them down. Whereas Pyro, because he's reported to not have even been interested in argument, I think represents perhaps the, the kind of purer version of this. Uh, potentially, it's hard to say exactly what Pyro believed. But the, the kind of purer version of this is, is you know, withhold assent and go along with whatever it is that comes up without uh, having an attitude to it, positive or negative, right? Which in some ways is similar to the Stoic response of, of don't let outside stuff affect you or cause you to feel emotions or passions. The Stoics tend to be very critical of the passions. So don't let external stuff activate the passions in you. But the, the way that you get to this non-activation is different. With the Stoics, it's willing it. It's through with, you know, refusing to give assent when you shouldn't or giving assent when you should. So, with the Stoic, it's, it's through this use of assent. It's very agentic. And so, a lot of Westerners who are interested in individualism like this Stoic emphasis on the agency of, of the person giving and withholding the assent. The skeptic is just always withholding assent. Now, there is still a skillfulness and a kind of exercise of the will in skepticism insofar as the skeptic has to, uh, you know, undertake the great pains of withholding assent, even in cases where it, it would be really easy to give it. And one of the stories that's told about Pyro that may or may not be true is that a dog barked at Pyro and it briefly scared him. And then he was a little embarrassed at having been scared by the dog because he had given assent to the idea that the dog was really there. And that's why he had taken so seriously the dog barking. So it's not that uh, necessarily that he shouldn't react to the dog or that he shouldn't react to the appearance, but he shouldn't react in such a serious way that takes the dog so seriously. As if the dog is really real, as if, you know, if he's killed or if something happens to him, it's really happened. The level of emotional excitement that he had was incompatible with uh, this kind of, of non-committal attitude. You can still respond to an appearance, but if you respond in a heavily, intensely emotional way, then you're letting the appearance disturb you. If you see a, a wagon coming, you may be allowed to get out of the way, but you shouldn't get out of the way with, with passion, with a, a kind of terror. And so, in both the skeptic and the stoic, there is a kind of emphasis on lowering or reducing passion through a skillfulness, which is a kind of agentic virtue, right? The virtue in Plato and Aristotle is more communal, political thing, cultivated by the whole society, and not about specific people developing skills which enable them to deviate heavily from the norms. But is that not what's kind of exciting about, you know, The fact that it, it, it doesn't have to depend, a bit like Aquinas, like uh, at the end of the day, you can say no, 
maybe to things. No matter how great well, this the pressure is, I think is. what really got a lot of Hellenistic uh, thinkers excited, this idea of saying no, and similar with Diogenes the Cynic, who I think would be the closest to this in Plato's own time, uh, of just not going along with the city, not following it, and not living in a way which relates to it. Uh, but of course, the point that the Platonists would make about Diogenes is that he did live in the city and he lived off the city. Yeah. He needed food and money from people who passed by and... And he had to find a way to get attention to be given these things. And he had to get people to admire him and to follow him to get this stuff. And that nonetheless involved engagement with the city. And in part, the reason that Diogenes existed is the kind of city that Athens was. It was the kind of city where Diogenes could be. So, you And that was in part Plato's critique of it, <laughs> that Athens allows this kind of thing. So, so, because Athens would put him to work if it was more virtuous, maybe, or more ordered towards the good, he would be participating yes, in the good it, more. Yes, it would not have allowed him to become, you know, in the Republic, these uh, propertyless people who beg are, are referred to as drones, and they're framed as having come out of the degradation of the city. And the drones are divvied up into drones with stings and drones without. So, some drones take to crime and they take to violence and they um, try to champion tyrannical demagogues others just beg in the street and don't cause you know, more active trouble but they don't have property and so they aren't integrated into the city right uh, and that's what happens as as you get deeper into democracy for plato you get more of these drones once you move into oligarchy and you get the big uh, inequality of of wealth and property associated with oligarchy that leads to people who have nothing and who are forced to beg. And for Plato, this is an outcome of the city and not, uh, you know, so instead of saying that Diogenes is Diogenes because he is brave and he defies social norms, Plato would say Diogenes is Diogenes because the city produces miserable, impoverished people who beg in the street and who come up with the kinds of ideas that street beggars come up with. Is it true that a lot of Stoics, or is this the, uh, what do you call them? The sophists. Is it the sophists or the stoics or both or who would also be vagrant a bit like Pyro and just wander around? I guess the difference with Pyro is that Pyro would do it for its own sake, whereas the other teachers would, yeah, they would be teachers. They would come back to the city and make their reputation as a teacher and then go back into the wild, whereas Pyro would just do it for its own sake, seemingly. And maybe Plato would have more issues with that than the others. Well, the, the cynics talking about Diogenes, Diogenes is a cynic. And the cynics are a whole separate school from the skeptics. The cynics had this kind of wastrel behavior, right? The, uh, the, the sophists were teachers who took money to teach people. Often they trained people in rhetoric. Often they subscribed to pre-Socratic ideas. So they would be a, a whole different, a whole different ball of wax. Oftentimes, a lot of sophists would claim that there was no real difference between truth and, and, and not truth mm. and engage in kind of relativistic arguments. But they did not have the kind of attitude that, say, the skeptics had. The skeptics would say, well, since you can't be sure about what's true or false, you ought not to affirm anything. The sophists have a, a view that is more similar to, say, Nietzsche's view, which is since you can't be sure uh, about any of this stuff, uh, why bother with questions about knowledge at all and instead do whatever it is that uh, 
enables you to get power or to get wealth or to get whatever it is that you happen to want. So desires are just kind of often taken at face value by the sophists. And they make these kind of thrasumicus arguments for just engaging in in rhetoric for personal gain or engaging in unjust behavior, because who really can tell the difference between just and unjust anyway? Uh, So they uh, uh, use rhetoric to potentially get ahead or to have a political career or to have high status. So they they make these kinds of arguments that, well, you you can't really tell the difference uh, between good or bad, or the difference doesn't matter, or insofar as there is a difference, trying to be good will just make you miserable. So uh, you might as well just pursue you know, your, your, what pleases you and what is to your own personal advantage. And it's those arguments that Plato and Socrates are responding to in a lot of the dialogues, right? But notice that even the sophists' arguments, insofar as the sophists are not interested in, in, so much in what's true or in knowledge or in the good, the sophists are very interested in what is useful for acting politically, so they're very interested in rhetoric. They're teachers of rhetoric. They're in, and part of the reason that they teach this is they're trying to show their, their students that you can use rhetoric to achieve lots of different goals and purposes and that rhetoric is a tool that can be good or bad depending on the user. Uh, Plato makes the argument in the Gorgias that uh, if that's true about rhetoric, then it is not uh, a virtuous craft because it can be readily and easily used for bad purposes. And Plato argues that rhetoric, if anything, tends to be used for bad purposes because it in itself is not interested in what is good or what is true as a craft, and that the rhetoricians don't know anything about the good and therefore are prone to misleading the city. Uh, that, that's the argument with Callicles and the Gorgas about this. That's a bit weird because isn't it like saying that desire is just bad? Whereas maybe it's more like the sophists say it can be a potential or a power for either good or bad, depending on how you deploy. Yeah, I wouldn't say that Plato says that desire is just bad, but that desire and, and the passions have to be managed. Mm. Uh, so you know, for Aristotle, the emphasis is on moderation or temperance. Uh, for Plato, temperance is, is a virtue. And that you know, means that you don't you can't get rid of desires. And there's a distinction between the necessary desires that people can't get rid of and the unnecessary ones that you should try to get rid of or try to heavily moderate. Uh, but... Uh, in contrast, the Stoics and the skeptics are more interested in getting rid of these passions because to, to desire something and to allow yourself to be uh, wholly carried off by that uh, would, be, would be a problem. Now, the Stoics argue that our desires are not in themselves a problem because our desires come from reason and not from passions per se. The Stoics kind of argue that the passions are a bit of a a misnomer and that our desires all have some kind of basis in reason ultimately. The uh, that kind of argument can substantiate desire. And so a lot of Stoics were okay with uh luxurious lifestyles. If you happen to have luxuries available to you, there's no Stoic argument that you can't enjoy them which is another reason why Roman aristocrats tended to like this. You know, there's no reason you can't go to the baths if you have access to the baths. But your virtue should not depend on your access to, to the baths or to luxury goods. Uh, if you have them, then okay, but uh, you shouldn't be dependent on them for your virtue. So it becomes a vice or a passion once yeah, you can't just let it pass you by, but you have to run after it in that sense. Yeah. For the Stoics, if you have a weakness of will, then you'll start giving assent to 
to I- impressions that are not based in reality. And that's, you know, when you're carried off by the passions, you're giving assent uh, to stuff you shouldn't be giving assent to because your ability to distinguish between what you should and shouldn't give assent to is very weak. And so the process of cultivating virtue is the process of strengthening this ability to give and withhold assent based on real cognitive impressions rather than the regular ones. Do you think there's that many ways of training the mind then? Or do you think it eventually converges on a few? It it seems like by telling you to not go for either true or false, as opposed to just saying, hmm, don't believe in that, it's a lot more complex. It's like it undoes all your assumptions. And that seems common to a lot of doctrines that would, yeah, that would have a lot of issue with pyro. It theoretically, but practically they're doing the same kind of thing, just uprooting all their assumptions about, yeah, our life. Yeah. There's this question of, of, okay, so if you're going to uproot your set of norms, you then have to find a way to then act in the world after you've done that. Sometimes I like to think about the the way Aristotle puts this in terms of you, you're taught a set of habits when you're a kid, right? You learn a set of habits, and then you reach a point where you're able to question those habits and to question why you have them, why you follow them, right? Now, some people never get to the point where they can question the habits. Some people are never taught the habits in the first place, right? But if you're taught the habits and you get to the point where you can question the habits, then what do you do? Some people, they just throw all the habits out and they're unable to affirm anything in particular and they kind of end up in a never-ending kind of nihilistic attitude where anything that anybody posits, they have to completely tear it down. Uh, Some people are able to realize why they were taught the habits and they uh, reaffirm the habits having considered them, right? Then you've got people who uh, are able to understand why they were taught the habits, but they don't just reaffirm them. They then find ways to change or alter them. They realize that habits are things that can be improved and that they're not perfect in the way that they are taught uh, and that they don't necessarily perfectly track the good and, and that you've got to constantly be in this dialectical process of trying to improve them. Uh, but to have that view requires, when you get to that stage of questioning the habits, that you don't throw out the idea that there's something that habits are for, that there is some sense in which there's a good life, or there's a better or worse way of living. If you throw out at that third stage, when you question the habits, if you throw out the purpose that the habits are taught for, then it becomes impossible to construct anything. And so if you get stuck in that spot, you run aground. Now, the skeptics, I think, did not run aground there insofar as they retained an interest in ataraxia. Something, some definite. Some better way of living, right? Freedom from disturbance is being better than disturbed all the time, right? Just that much. And insofar as they retained that idea that it was better to be free from disturbance than to be disturbed, they retained some notion of the good. But this idea of freedom from disturbance is a less political idea than, say, Plato's idea of the good, which, of course, is also taken up by Aristotle. 
it's it's less overtly political. And so you get some of the schools pursuing ataraxia in a non-political way, the Stoics pursuing ataraxia in a way that's compatible with politics. And the fight between these ultimately producing, I think, the Humean position, and the Humean position being a kind of qualified Pyronism, in the sense that the uh, dispensation to give provisional assent to appearances to get through life is also extended to philosophical ideas. And so it gives a kind of pragmatism. Pragmatism ends up being the outcome of Pyrrhonism, insofar as Pyrrhonism becomes about fighting dogmas instead of about just ataraxia. And so when you get Hume, Hume isn't trying to get ataraxia, but Hume marshals Pyrrhonist ideas in the service of a qualified empiricism. And that qualified empiricism becomes the base for positivism and for the kind of empiricism which is largely dominant now. So in that sense, Pyrrhonism becomes political, even though it starts as a kind of critique of the Stoics, who are themselves much more political, much more overtly political. Uh, it becomes political insofar as bits and pieces of it are taken up to serve this other purpose around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, mostly. <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is most scientific reasoning using like yeah marshalling using some skepticism then because or even common sense right people just noticing that i can't just yeah accept things at face value yeah if you go into a philosophy class uh, oftentimes in an introductory philosophy class you're taught kind of modern skepticism right at the start modern not pyronian uh, yeah yeah not pyronian but of course, modern skepticism, to a large degree, has its roots in this, uh, and was was uh, developed in part because of the rediscovery of this corpus and the reengagement with it. And the modern skeptical argument, when you take an intro to fill class, it's not decisively beaten. Nobody decisively beats the skeptical argument. You're kind of left in a Humean position of well. You can't decisively beat this argument, so remember that whatever you postulate, you really can't be sure about. But go on postulating anyway, because we have to postulate, because if we don't postulate, then we can't get on. And so the, the student is kind of introduced to a, a kind of pragmatism as a default position, and the pragmatism is kind of friendly to a Humean empiricism, which is, I think, the, the default and dominant view today. And, and do you think Pyro would say you can't postulate at all? You can't go well, on doing that? I think Pyro, you could do it, but it wouldn't get you to ataraxia. Right? Worrying about what is the real true nature of things versus just the appearances. If you just go along with, well, it seems hot, so I'll maybe uh, you know, turn on the air conditioning. Uh, and you extend this to it really is hot and I need to come up with a conceptual framework for grounding this as a truth. Right? I wow. have to you know, be that's a, what we do. do science. Well, it's kind of what we do. Right, that's what we do. Not, yeah, not with science, but like in terms of forcing our desires on people, yeah, we do that. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not freedom from disturbance. And so Hume is, uh, 
to a large degree, influenced by Pyrrhonism, but he doesn't care about ataraxia because he thinks that if you actually do what the Pyrrhonists do, you don't get ataraxia, you get this crippling anxiety that you're not secure, that your knowledge is not secure. And the Pyrrhonists go, why do you need that? Why are you so caught up in trying to secure claims about reality? Why just respond to the appearance? Why do you need to try to nail it down? But it's the trying to nail it down that leads to science and leads to modern science. It's Hume's inability to go along with this. And to a large degree, Western industrialization is a product of Westerners spiritually not being able to go along with this. You know, when you get to these, these objects that are postulated as, as what life should be about, whether it's ataraxia or the good, the Humean cannot go along with either of those things. The Humean does not argue that what we should be going for is ataraxia or that we should be going for the good in some kind of platonic or rationalist sense. The Humean is not happy with either of those outcomes. And as a result, you get this kind of thin empiricism that is constantly suspicious of itself. And that's the closest we've been able to come to a philosophy that we can live with. In part because we can't bear the uh, lack of certainty of these other approaches. And so the commitment to the totalizing skepticism also leads to this desire for certainty. And the two things kind of feed off each other. Stoicism and skepticism fed off each other and bothered each other. And so the skeptics, most of them do not achieve ataraxia, maybe pyro, but not the later ones, because they're caught up in this incessant fight with the Stoics, because it bothers them too much that the Stoics try to make these certain claims. And Hume was bothered by the fact that he couldn't be sure about things. It bothered him. And so he wanted to try to be sure about things. He wasn't content to, to not make claims like pyro. And our empiricist tradition is is both, on some level, very suspicious of itself, but not content to take those suspicions fully seriously. So it papers over its suspicions so that it can continue. Well, and so it can have mass appeal. I mean, you can't run a society Mm -hmm. without people following their desires, I guess. But there is something superhuman about being able to say no to that that Pyro had, maybe. Yeah, and in the Hellenistic period, there was this immense interest in the superhuman, in the sage, Mm. in the sage. And for Aristotle and Plato, the sage is trying to be a god. Which he shouldn't be. And for the Christians, the sage is trying to be a god, which is a prideful mistake. It's funny because Timon actually supposedly refers to Pyro as the sun god, using yeah lots of flowery language, you know, praising that. And that's not too long after Aristotle, is it? (laughs) So... Yeah, this idea of a kind of enlightened one. Yeah, who circles the earth calmly. Having a kind of spiritual quality that is beyond being human. Mm. And why is it not prideful, like, a generation later, is it? Or is it always, there's always been both views in Greece? Well, I think that uh, pride was not as much an object of discussion in Plato and Aristotle as it is in, in later Christian discussions and in some of the later academic discussions the the platonic academy its response to stoicism is often to accuse the stoics of pride and in claiming uh, to know with a greater certainty than they do 
and in uh, taking appearances too seriously. You know, the Stoic goes from impressions, which are appearances, and the Platonist is very skeptical about appearances. The, the Platonist thinks that there is truth, but not in appearances, uh, or at least not very much in appearances, because appearances are so down, so far down the, pla- the Platonic ladder of reality, right? insofar as appearances are well down from forms, well deviant from forms, they contain a lot of misleading features. And so to think that an impression can give you knowledge is to go in the opposite direction. For the Platonist, you have to contemplate the forms and, and you have to contemplate the one and the good and, uh, and engage with that. But is that not a translation into more mystical language for what the Stoic is doing? Because the Stoic, the sage, isn't just accepting all impressions as, as reasonable. I mean, he finds or she finds that you can find reason within that. But when they're doing the reflective equilibrium, this kind of, yeah, fitting it into a yeah. whole, that's a rational exercise. That's what Platon is. Yeah. Uh, of course, to be clear, reflective equilibrium is a modern term for trying to build a consistent set of values. The Stoics did have an interest in consistency. They wanted all of the things that the sage assented to to be consistent one with the other. Uh, but the Platonic idea doesn't necessarily, Platonists don't have to affirm that kind of consistency. They the, are able to potentially suggest that there's flux or contingency. Well, I don't follow. The Stoic, because the Stoic is committed to a system of natural law, there has to be a, a good deal of consistency in a Stoic view, because th- this natural law is meant to be unchangeable and to apply to everybody. Platonism, insofar as we're talking about the good, the good of particular cities or particular people could have some v- variety to it. It can be contingent. Or wishy-washy, depending on how kind. Well, depending on the way that you want to approach it. From the Stoic point of view, yes, wishy-washy, insufficiently concrete. From the Platonic view, uh, more dynamic and, and uh, able to constantly be revised based on continued reflection. Uh, and continued engagement. You know, philosophy is a relationship for Platonism, loving wisdom, being in this relationship with wisdom, this pursuit of wisdom is the thing that you're after in life. Uh, so an ongoing relationship, not a set of things that you've assented to and you've put into a concrete schema and they're all consistent with each other. What would Pyro say that love's just like for not is another appearance completely, just something that you have to distance from do you think is that consistent well uh, something that you can't take entirely seriously mm. right so uh, appearances can move you to do things in uh, for pyro i think but you can't take them you can't reify them the word that we would use today is reify to treat an abstraction as if it's real or to treat a convention as if it's real to take something a little bit too seriously that's, that's the ultimate skeptical objection. It's not to getting out of the way of the wagon, but to taking the wagon too seriously, to feeling and acting as if it's really real, rather than just something in a dream that you, you know, may want to get out of the way of, just in case. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, it seems more interesting to apply it yeah, just in daily life for a day and just say, if I can not judge anything, as opposed to just theoretically say, what does this view imply? You know, like, it's hard to work yeah. it out. It might be more interesting. And this is, yeah, I think ultimately the reason the skeptics only get so far is that a lot of people, when they look at skepticism, don't see it as a path to ataraxia, but as a path to feeling a sense of lack of control. Well, that is ataraxia, isn't it? That's how you get, well, no, go on. 
Right, right. But this attempt to control, to try to make things good or make things better, or to try to uh, make oneself into a better person. It's this attempt to kind of define, even if it's in a general sense like the Platonist, but especially if it's in the highly specific and concrete sense like the Stoic. It's this attempt to act and to have what what we're doing be meaningful and the 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 way that the skeptic frames it is not satisfying to people who are wanting to do things and the the humian response is this this wanting to be able nonetheless to claim or nonetheless to try to do things this kind of nonetheless emphasis that I think is in Hume and in Plato. Yes, appearances can be deceiving, but nonetheless, there has to be some kind of way of trying to live a better life. There have to be ways of distinguishing better lives from worse lives. This impulse to nonetheless try. But doesn't that just come out silently from practicing what Pyro teaches? Because you would quickly find out that nonetheless, yeah, you're going to deal with it one way or another. Like you're going to either go on living or you're going to die. So there's going to be some practical insight that's not theoretical that's going to come up nonetheless. Well, and this would be the, you know, the Buddhist story is that you've got to do this for a long time. Yes, when you start off with it, it won't feel, uh, it won't feel like much and it might feel kind of empty or vacuous. But if you stick with it, the thing about uh, Buddhism is that Buddhism has uh, a much more, uh, a much larger corpus and a lot more different kinds of arguments and paths into it than Pyrrhonian skepticism. And so I think that some of the adaptations that Pyro, that, that Pyrrhonian skepticism takes in focusing around the knowledge question and in being so much a negative response to Stoicism limited the growth potential of Pyrrhonian skepticism. The Buddhist is more focused around this is a path to an end of suffering. Yeah, it's not just like... And so in the beginning, the Buddhist is telling you what you're going to get. Ataraxia, I think, plays a significant role in Pyro's own work. But by the time you get to Sextus Empiricus, so much of what's going on is negating that the path to Ataraxia gets lost amidst all of this, all of this trying to fight with the Stoics. And I, I think it's unsurprising that after Sextus Empiricus, there is a, a real lack of skeptical writing for quite some time because the tradition became so obsessed with trying to beat the Stoics. And the Stoics, uh, because they were offering something, were in a more competitive position than a school which is mainly speaking negatively. Uh, and if the skeptics had instead, like the Buddhists, focused more on what could positively be attained through adopting the mindset, they might have done better. But ultimately, they, they have their victory in Hume and in the form of qualified empiricism that comes out of Hume. Uh, although I think Pyro would would find that uh, our our attempt to make empirical claims anyway leads us to a lot of of, of disturbing moments and and feeling you see this in in some of our crises about science and crises you know, over say the pandemic or climate change these crises where scientific evidence becomes an important part of the public debate. This lack of, of certainty about science uh, bothers people. A and yet the need to try to make science claims is there. And so there is a disturbance both in the sense that we feel we've got to make science claims and we've got to get science and 
involved in our public policy and informing our public policy. And yet also this, this sense that we can't really be sure that any of the science we adopt is really credible and that in trying to adapt science, we may be just setting up uh, you know, power knowledge nexi in, in the Foucauldian sense, that we may just be empowering different sets of bureaucrats or technocrats to dominate us. Because if we were really confident in our science, we wouldn't be bothered by the threat of technocracy. Um, but if we you know, were really skeptical about our science, we would never allow there to be uh, technocrats in the first instance, because we wouldn't have developed our science to this point, and we would have a much less technologically sophisticated society. So to a large degree, industrialization and, and scientific development is a product of our inability to be content or to be okay with things as they are. And I think the same also goes for our political development and for this, this need to have a state which is legitimate in all of these various senses. Uh, that's not to say that I think that the skeptical view is better or right, uh, because I think that there's a lot that we should be trying to do in politics to make things better. And I think that there are all sorts of problems that we should be trying to solve. Uh, but the, 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 by talking about this skeptical view and thinking about it, I think it gives us some insight into the particular way in which modern states try to solve this problem and try to answer this question. The skeptical view was not really taken up in antiquity. Instead, the Neoplatonists and the Christians eventually went out in antiquity. But in uh, the contemporary world, of uh, a view that is much closer to this view has a lot more influence than uh, a lot of, of Neoplatonist positions, I, I think, uh, in terms of how modern states are constructed and how they think. When we talk about the Neoplatonists on this show, we're, we're often mining them for alternative visions of, of how things might, might be thought about, you know, or at least I'm often doing that. I'm often thinking about the Neoplatonists in relation to, to Marx and in relation to Marxist claims and, and how they might interface and forms of social change that might have a kind of platonic component. But this is, uh, I think, the reason I wanted to do this episode is to just talk about uh, our relationship to empiricism now and the degree to which it reflects some of this legacy. So I hope the episode has been useful in thinking about that uh, and political in that sense. But if, if, uh, if listeners don't think it's political enough, do, do uh, find a way to reach me and tell me that you think I've gone off on a terrible tangent. I'd be very interested to hear. Uh, but we should probably wrap up because we're over an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. and Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.